This is Nature's Touch. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. We invite you to sit by our virtual campfire, and I'll share some interviews through this special series called Nature's Touch, Climate Change is Here. Interviews that are truly inspirational to me and focus on our global concerns. My wife and I have been spending a fair amount of time in the summer recently rafting on the upper Yukon and just seeing whole riverbanks that were permafrost thawing and collapsing right into the river. I used to listen to other radio shows and they were like, oh, not in our lifetime. You know, we're talking in another generation. Now it's like, nope, it's here. We used to descend on kind of a, a rough trail that went down and you hit snow and basically you just slide down the rest of the way till you were down on the ice. And even that route now is treacherous. Fuel tank farms are not forever. The village of Quinnahawk has been in the news as representing the issue of uh, Arctic sea ice loss. There's so much that's not even in the film. Um, there's stories of uh, families' dogs being slaughtered by the RCMP with no explanation. The sort of elephants in the room is that even if you uh, hit all the numbers from the Paris Accord and Paris Agreement and you uh, reduce emissions and everything, the timescales of reversing the ice loss are generational. And a story like Quinnahawk will absolutely be able to demonstrate very clearly how we as, as a species depend on the natural ecosystems to function. Everywhere you go, people are talking about climate change. So I thought, let's go to these places that we ordinarily wouldn't otherwise have access to and ask people to tell their stories, including all the complexities of their lives in the age of COVID, in the winter, cold. What is it like? How are you doing? And what are you seeing on our planet? Our mother, planet Earth. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. You're listening to Nature's Touch with host Robert Lindahl. Thanks for joining us by the campfire. Don't go away. Radio as an art form allows you, the listener, to create the movie in your own mind. Radio does this. Filmmaking doesn't. 
For several weeks, I've been conducting interviews with other filmmakers, scientists, and experts familiar with climate change. I've also been attending online Zoom meetings with members from an organization called the Greenbelt Society. It's a group of professionals, faculty, alumni, and students affiliated with the Department of Geography and Environmental Science at Hunter College in New York. Their topics of discussion have been about the Elwha Dam deconstruction and river restoration project in Port Angeles, uh, Washington. The other topic being discussed has been a village in Alaska called Queenahawk, where the loss of permafrost and erosion of land due to the rising sea levels are having devastating effects on many villages, including theirs. To try to remedy this critical situation, they've started using an organic approach known as bioremediation, using mushrooms to clean up leaking oil and gas caused by unstable foundations from melting permafrost. I'm gonna take a music break and we'll be back to share my conversations I had with Dave Skinner and Natalie Monterosa. Welcome back to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. This is part two with Dave Skinner, who, as he says, has spent most of his life on the Olympic Peninsula, backpacking, climbing peaks, working on trails, and doing glacier research for the University of Washington. Yeah, my name is Dave Skinner, and I've hiked in uh, Olympic National Park. Uh, well, I basically started in the late 50s, but didn't get real serious until the early 70s. And uh, I would usually put in five to 600 miles each season, exploring all the trails and off trail. And, and then in the mid 70s, uh, I first climbed Mount Olympus in 1974. And, and then I would stop by the research station there and talk with the grad students or whoever was working there. In 75, I met Rich Marriott, um, who was the station manager up there for a number of years and ended up working for him in 76, just as a volunteer. Uh, and the studies were ablation, how much melts and accumulates during the course of the season. They had a long uh, history of study on Blue Glacier on Mount Olympus. So I would usually, I would always go in there every year and, uh, and work for Rich. Uh, and then at one point for a couple of seasons, I was station manager in charge of 
glacial observations. Uh, we'd drill in uh, ablation stakes. Everything was done pretty much by hand in those days. Keep track of uh, the weather and, and uh, document that. In the mid-70s, the, the glacier actually, actually surged so that it, uh, uh, the volume was probably some of the greatest in recent times. And, and then since that time, it's been this gradual uh, uh, recession or reduction. In the volume of ice, to the point now where it's it's uh, probably 40 percent of its volume has decreased, and it's very significant in just the way we move about the glacier now. It used to be you could take the short trail up to the terminus of the Blue from Glacier Meadows, and um, that route is just. Uh, I tried to do it a couple years ago and we had planned to pack a bunch of uh, research debris up that way and it just became impossible. It, it, it was dangerous just to try to solo climb it without a rope. And that was a route uh, I took years ago and, and just walked across the ice. There might have been a short scramble to get to the trail. The old standby route was to the upper end of the glacier, uh, to the, the uh, upper moraine trail. And we used to descend on kind of a, a rough trail that went down and then you hit snow and basically you just slide down the rest of the way till you were down on the ice. And even that route now is, uh, people still are doing it, but it's very treacherous. If you fell there, you'd, you'd end up in the hospital. So we had, we had to find another route uh, completely where we go f traverse further up glacier on rock uh, and then drop down to the glacier itself. And that, that's really the most dramatic change. It, it seems like the upper mountain, which I'm on every year, uh, it, it seems like it... Like this year, it seemed like there was a substantial amount of snow at the higher elevation, say uh, 7,000 feet and higher, uh, up to 8,000 feet. And the route we took through the cirque between Middle and West Peak, um, the crevasses were pretty much still closed up and we could just ascend straight up, which isn't always the case. Sometimes we have to zigzag through that area quite a bit. So it, it looks like the upper mountains getting more snow, but the lower glacier, not so much. Uh, it's melted way back with the ice exposed earlier in the season. What about temperature overall? Uh, do you have any data? Data would be had by uh, University of Washington, I think, primarily. I don't know if the Park Service is, has been keeping tabs on that. Mm -hmm. No. But uh, yeah, we used to keep the weather morning and evening up there when we manned the station. Oh, okay, because that would be interesting, right? To correlate temperature with with volume. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if recently they are uh, collecting temperature data. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Did the funding for this kind of uh, study kind of move 
elsewhere uh, since there's been more of a discussion of of global weirding or global warming, whatever you want to call it, since that's become a funding target? Yeah, it seems like people are more interested in Antarctica and Alaska, the glaciers there, and uh, blue glaciers kind of been put on the side, at least by the university. So the Park Service had been doing some ablation studies up there for the maybe the last 10 years or so. Uh, I didn't see ablation stakes up there this year. So I, I don't know if they melted out or, or if they're reestablishing those. I'm not sure. I haven't talked to them. It was one of the most continuously studied glaciers uh, in the lower 48 if not the most, um, it, it seems like it would be a good idea to keep keep track of that data and and and, uh, and see where it goes from there. That was Dave Skinner, who is from Washington State. Next, we'll hear from Natalie Monterosa. Natalie is a graduate and aspiring marine scientist from New York City. She has a BS in sustainability and an MA in earth and environmental science. Her interests are physical oceanography, marine conservation, climatology, and science. She is currently a member of the Greenbelt Society. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Robert Lundahl, host and producer of Nature's Touch, Climate Change Is Here series. It's, yes, it's the, the incredible uh, science behind ice and its formation and its its um, contribution to our planetary system but the underlying piece of that for me which really fascinates me is is temperature and temperature is something that really determines what lives and what doesn't live where do humans fit in this system now like we look at this from afar and say, oh, glaciers are melting, et cetera, and, and just trying to keep track of it. But here we are dependent on that as a participating species. It's quite an extraordinary time to be alive and be not just being alive, but the human species in general, the amount of knowledge in, in the scientific world that's been exposed to us now, what they will be. So I think... Um, you know, that's why, you know, for me, education is so, it's vital. It's key to, to us um, trying to save ourselves. Uh, if we don't understand it, we don't study it, we don't uh, recognize the impact that it has on us, um, you know, on us as a species and our ecosystem, uh, the planetary ecosystem, we, we really we're left in the dark or left out in the cold, you know, no uh, pun intended there. Well, there used to be a conversation that was framed in light of um, mitigation or adaptation. So about five years ago, there started to be more of a, I don't know, at least a cultural 
willingness to say things like, hey, we're, we're over the line. There's no turning back. We're not going to be able to, we're going to barely be able to maintain habitability. So the challenge is um, uh, adapting. You know, whether you live on the seacoast of South Carolina or you live in Quinnahawk or you live on the Marshall Islands or Bangladesh. Yeah, that's absolutely the name of the game now is, is adaptation and uh, preparation, you know, preparing for these major events, um, these natural occurrences, getting more frequent, getting more intense, whether it's a wildfire, it's a hurricane, it's, uh, um, you know. Storm surge is a good example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are, these are things that, you know, we, we're somewhat prepared for, but I, I don't think that we're really taking this seriously enough that we can handle the constant battering um, that our, you know, forests are going to be subjected to uh, with when it comes to wildfires. So we, yes, preparation is key. Adaptation is absolutely um, something we should be focused on because these things are already you know, going to happen. We're not, you know, we crossed a lot of tipping points. So it's not like we can say that we're still sitting on the other side. We're not, you know, we're, we're in it. And so um, we have to find a way to adapt for, for our sake now and for the future of our species as well as the, every other species on this planet. And New York, hasn't there been, you know, some flooding or some awareness of, you know, this kind of sea level issue going on in New York, Wall Street? Absolutely. That, that's, so sea, sea level rise is one of those things that we, you know, we're constantly hearing about in New York, obviously, we're very much vulnerable to that. Um, and then when a storm like Sandy, uh, Superstorm Sandy came through, that was a real awakening for us you know um i remember uh here you know when sandy came through i was um you know maybe a, about a month or two maybe away from giving birth to my second child we were left in the dark we were sitting here trying to figure out you know <laughs> how to stay warm um so that was quite an experience i imagine it was a lot worse for a lot of people as well so uh, we have one day you have all the comforts, conveniences, and assurances of the entire Western world and modern civilization, and the next day it's gone. You know these these uh, conveniences, as we like to call them, right? Electricity or running water and things like that. We take all that for granted every single day. I mean, you know, there are people on the earth now who don't have those things, so they when they do experience it, they're very much, you know, aware of how it easily it can go and it can be taken away from you. Um, us here in, you know, living in a place like New York or California or just the United States in general, we have access to these things. And uh, yeah, when, when there's a possibility that it can be taken away, uh, we get very scared. But I think that preparing for those things, um, being prepared is, is that really takes away some of the fear of the unknown. So, you know, I tell my children all the time, you know, you have to be bold and be brave, you know, be brave in life. Don't think that, 
you just because you don't understand or know something, um, you're scared of it. But if you try to learn about it and try to understand it, maybe you won't be so scared. Do you think there's a connection between this consciousness of youth, you know, let's say growing up in New York and the story around Quinnahawk. Like one of the reasons that Quinnahawk is so powerful, I think, as a story or, or fascinating is that like the whole village has to move. And and New York doesn't have to move exactly. But there's a connection, you know, there's the the connection of how you see and interpret this information or this story, you know, from Alaska, let's say, into the lives of, you know, your family or a student or your kind of um, community awareness or participation around, you know, whatever it's going to be. Maybe it's a nature walk or maybe it's voting, you know. Uh, so so how, how do you see that? How do you think that's useful in a way? Well, the story of Quinnahawk, I think, is one that really demonstrates how, um, you know, how dependent we are for the ecosystems and the natural world around us to um, be able to function as, as intended. Um, you know, we're here in New York, we're surrounded by, by concrete and steel and, you know, buildings everywhere. We don't necessarily uh, maintain that everyday line of sight, you know, um, to to the natural world. But Quinnahawk is that is a is an example that we need to be paying attention to, because it even though they're not as you know urban, right? It's not an urban setting where it's just buildings and cars and a whole bunch of people it's still where they're still dependent on their environment just as we are so we have to look around us as well and say are these are the systems around us functioning as they should for our benefit to keep us going um are you saying it's like a reminder of the closeness yeah it, it absolutely we we're connected to where we live where we sleep where we have friends and go to school Kunahak is, is, for me personally, it's not just a reminder of, of how closely connected we are to the places that we live and depend on, but also how when those systems erode, um, and I'm, I'm referring to the natural systems, when those systems erode, the you know the trajectory of things it's sort of it's it's sort of snowballs right everything it's one after the next it's a domino effect and so we in instead of trying to stop the ball from you know coming all the way down the hill we got to stop it from rolling altogether we have to find ways to mitigate before it gets too big that we can't stop it um and i think that that's that's what happened to, to Quinnahawk. No one would really know about their plight or their story until their story is shown or is, is put out there for people to see. 
So I think, and, that, and that's one of the things that we're, we can possibly contribute. Society and, and humans work like a, it's a web, right? We're all connected in some way to someone, somewhere. We as, as a species depend on the natural ecosystems to function the way we need it to function for our own survival. And hopefully they can make, you know, they make that connection between the land and the people and understand that it travels and it carries over to all of us, whether you're in a city, suburb, you know, you're in the mountains, you're out, you know, on a small island somewhere in the middle of the ocean. It's all connected. Well, as usual, you know, you kind of wrapped it up in, in a box <laughs> with some paper on it and a bow. That's You're all too kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really good. It kind of leaves me stunned. I just, I really like that orientation about things, you know, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to um, articulate that. Hopefully they can make, you know, they make that connection between the land and the people and understand that it travels and it carries over to all of us, whether you're in a city, suburb, you know, you're in the mountains, you're out, you know, on a small island somewhere in the middle of the ocean. It's all connected. What I would tell people in New York City is it's no different than if they decided that that uh, Central Park really, really, really needed to be turned into a parking lot. And it's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we know better. And, and it's really important that we do this. And the parking fees are gonna go to this company that I own. And, you know, I'm really sorry, but that's just the way it's gonna be. Thanks again for tuning in and learning about the concerns my guests and I share, both Washington State and Alaska. In part one of the series, I spoke with Scott Ressler about his movie, The Last Ice. In part two, Dave Skinner shared what changes he's witnessed firsthand in the Olympic National Park. And Natalie Monterosa helped start the Greenbelt Society based on similar concerns and issues shared by herself organizations, and by many others when it comes to climate change. Tune in to part three to my interviews with Howard Sprouse of The Remediators and Enrique Lanz Oka, another member of the Greenbelt Society. Thank you, Robin Carneen of Namapa, First Peoples Radio, 
To find out more about my work, go to http colon slash slash agence, A-G-E-N-C-E, dash, R-L-A dot com. And to find out more specifically about Nature's Touch, go to http colon slash slash P-O-R-T-L dot com slash nature's dash touch.